Hey there, all you true crime fans. I'm your host, Amanda Russell, and this is Colorado Crime. If you're new here, I cover cases from coast to coast with a special emphasis on cases that happen right here in colorful, crime-filled Colorado. If you're returning, thanks for being here. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We certainly did. I, of course, ate way too much. And my dad came over. Chris, my husband, smoked a turkey. The kiddos enjoyed helping me cook. And it was just a really good time. Thank you guys so much for letting me take last week off. You guys are the best. Okay, so before we jump into this week's case, there's been an update in the Delphi case. A few weeks back, we talked about the murders of Abby Williams and Libby German. An arrest was made on October 26th, and we knew that Richard Allen, the Delphi resident, was taken into custody. That was really the only information we had. All the documents had been sealed by the court. But on November 29th, which was Tuesday, the eight-page probable cause affidavit was released. This is a document that contains the summary of allegations against the suspect. So I'm going to read some of it to you now. And I'll also put a link to it in my link tree if you guys are interested in reading it for yourselves. So this is what the affidavit says. State of Indiana versus Richard M. Allen. On February 14th, 2017, victim one and victim two were found deceased in the woods approximately 0.2 miles northeast of the Monon High Bridge in Carroll County. Their bodies were located on the north side of Deer Creek. It goes on to say, a video from victim two's phone shows that at 2.13 p.m., victim one and victim two encountered a male subject on the northeast portion of the Monon High Bridge. The male ordered the girls, quote, down the hill, end quote. No witnesses saw them after this time. No outgoing communications were found on victim two's phone after this time. Their bodies were discovered on February 14, 2017. The video recovered from victim two's phone shows a male subject wearing a dark jacket and jeans. As the male subject approaches victim one and victim two, one of the victims mentions, quote, gun, end quote. The girls then begin to proceed down the hill and the video ends. Victim one and victim two's deaths were ruled as homicide. Clothes were found in a deer creek belonging to victim one and victim two, south of where the bodies were located. There was also a 40 caliber unspent round less than two feet away from victim two's body between victim one and victim two's bodies. The round was unspent and had extraction marks on it. Interviews were conducted with three juveniles and two other unnamed witnesses. One witness advised when she was leaving, she noted a vehicle was parked in an odd manner at the old Child Protective Services building. She said it was not odd for vehicles to be parked there, but she noticed it was odd because of the manner it was parked, backed in near the building. Another witness observed a purple PT Cruiser or small SUV type vehicle parked on the south side of the old CPS building. He stated it appeared as though it was backed in as to conceal the license plate of the vehicle. Investigators spoke with another unknown witness who advised that the male subject was wearing a blue-colored jacket and blue jeans and was muddy and bloody. She further stated that it appeared he had gotten into a fight. 
It goes on to say, investigators reviewing prior tips encouraged a tip narrative from an officer who interviewed Richard M. Allen in 2017. The narrative stated, Mr. Allen was on the trail between 1330 and 1530. He parked at the old Farm Bureau building and walked to the new Freedom Bridge. While at the Freedom Bridge, he saw three females. He noted one was taller and had brown or black hair. He did not remember description, nor did he speak with them. He walked from the Freedom Bridge to the High Bridge. He did not see anybody, although he stated he was watching a stock ticker on his phone as he walked. He stated there were vehicles parked at the High Bridge trailhead, however, did not pay attention to them. He did not take any photos or videos. Investigators believe Mr. Allen was referring to the former Child Protective Service building. Investigators discovered Richard Allen owned two vehicles in 2017, a 2016 Black Ford Focus and a 2006 Gray Ford 500. Investigators observed a vehicle that resembled Allen's 2016 Ford Focus on video at 1.27 p.m. traveling westbound, which coincided with his statement that he arrived around 1.30 p.m. On October 13, 2022, Richard Allen was interviewed again by investigators. He advised he was on the trails on February 13, 2017. He stated he saw juvenile girls on the trail east of Freedom Bridge, and then he went onto the Monon High Bridge. Richard Allen further stated he went out onto the Monon High Bridge to watch fish. He said he walked out to the first platform on the bridge. He stated he then walked back, sat on a bench on the trail, and then left. He stated he parked his car on the side of an old building. He told investigators that he was wearing blue jeans and a blue or black Carhartt jacket with a hood. He told investigators that he owns firearms and they are at his home. Richard M. Allen's wife, Kathy Allen, also spoke to investigators. She confirmed that Richard did have guns and knives at the residence. She also stated that Richard still owns a blue Carhartt jacket. On October 13, 2022, Investigators executed a search warrant of Richard Allen's residence at 1967 North Whiteman Drive, Delphi, Carroll County, Indiana. Among other items, officers located jackets, boots, knives, and firearms, including a Sig Sauer Model P226, 40 caliber pistol. Between October 14, 2022 and October 19, 2022, the Indiana State Police Laboratory performed an analysis on Allen's Sig Sauer Model P226. The laboratory performed a physical examination and classification of the firearm, function test, barrel and overall length measurement, test firing, ammunition component characterization, microscopic characterization, and NIBIN. The laboratory determined the unspent round located within two feet of victim two's body had been cycled through Richard M. Allen's Sig Sauer Model P226. The laboratory remarked, quote, an identification opinion is reached when the evidence exhibits an agreement of class characteristics and a sufficient agreement of individual marks. 
Sufficient agreement is related to the significant duplication of random striated slash impressed marks as evidenced by the correspondence of a pattern or combination of patterns of surface contours. The interpretation of identification is subject in nature and based on relevant scientific research and the reporting examiner's training and experience. Investigators ran the firearm and found that the firearm was purchased by Richard Allen in 2001. Richard Allen voluntarily came to the Indiana State Police Post on October 26, 2022. He spoke with investigators and stated that he never allowed anyone to use or borrow the Sig Sauer Model P226 firearm. When asked about the unspent bullet, he did not have an explanation of why the bullet was found between the bodies of victim one and victim two. He again admitted that he was on the trail, but denied knowing victim one or victim two and denied any involvement in their murders. Investigators believe the evidence gathered shows that Richard Allen is the male subject seen on the video from victim two's phone who forced the victims down the hill. Further, that the victims were forced down the hill by Richard Allen and led to the location where they would be murdered. Richard Allen told investigators he was on the trail from 1.30 p.m. to 3.30 p.m. that day. The clothing he told investigators he was wearing matched the clothing of the male in victim two's video and the clothing description provided by the unnamed witnesses. A vehicle matching the description of his 2006 Ford Focus is seen at or around 2.10 p.m., 2.14 p.m., and 2.28 p.m. at the former CPS building. Through his own admissions, Richard Allen walked the trails and eventually hiked to the Monon High Bridge and walked out onto the Monon High Bridge. A male subject matching Richard Allen's description was not seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m. Investigators believe Richard Allen was not seen on the trail after 2.13 p.m because he was in the woods with victim one and victim two. An unspent 40 caliber round between the bodies of victim one and victim two was forensically determined to have been cycled through Richard Allen's Sig Sauer Model P226. The Sig Sauer Model P226 was found at Richard Allen's residence and he admitted to owning it. Richard Allen stated he had not been on the property where the unspent round was found that he did not know the property owner, and that he had no explanation as to why a round cycled through his firearm would be at this location. Furthermore, he stated that he never allowed anyone to use or borrow the Sig Sauer Model P226. Investigators believe that after the victims were murdered, Richard Allen returned to his vehicle by walking down County Road 300 North. Investigators believe he was seen with clothes that were muddy and bloody. Then it goes on to release the charges. It says State of Indiana versus Richard M. Allen, 1967, Whiteman Drive, Delphi, Indiana, 46923. Date of birth, 9-9 of 72. Goes on to say count one, murder, a felony, and count two, murder, a felony. Richard Allen is still expected in court in January of 2023. We now know he's being charged with two counts of felony murder. As always, I will keep you updated as this one progresses. Now, on to this week's case. This will be the start of our first ever multi-part series. This is the case that
that really got me interested in true crime. This episode is going to be an overview of who the victim was, the family involved, and a very brief overview of the crime itself. I remember when this happened, and I remember how scared I was. I slept with my lamp on in my bedroom for six months. And I remember the media frenzy that fully engulfed this case. This is the unsolved murder of six-year-old JonBenet Ramsey. It was the day after Christmas in 1996. The news was flooded with coverage of a missing little girl from Boulder, Colorado. She lived in a very affluent part of town. Her dad owned Axis Graphics, a company that was a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, and she competed in a magnitude of beauty pageants all over the U.S. From the time she was reported missing, around 6 a.m. to 1 p.m., this was treated as a kidnapping. Around 1 p.m., she was discovered in her own home by her own father, deceased, and it quickly turned into one of the most high-profile cases the U.S. had ever seen. Boulder Police Department and Boulder County District Attorney's Office would go on to battle amongst each other, further jeopardizing the already flawed investigation. Let me give you guys a little more information on the Ramsey family. John Ramsey was born on December 7, 1943. He was a very successful businessman who would eventually go on to become an author after his daughter's murder. John had received a degree in 1966 from Michigan State University in electrical engineering. He went on to earn an MBA from the same university in 1971. The same year John earned his first degree, he went on to join the Navy. He was also married to Lucinda Pash in 1966, and the couple had three children together. John Andrew, Melinda, and Elizabeth. Unfortunately, John Bonet's death was not John's first experience with losing a child. In 1992, at the age of 22, Elizabeth Ramsey and her boyfriend, Matthew Darrington, collided with a bakery truck near Chicago and both were killed. Elizabeth was laid to rest in Marietta, Georgia, and just four short years later, her six-year-old half-sister would be laid to rest next to her. In 1978, John and Lucinda divorced and John went on to meet Patsy Ramsey. John and Patsy Ramsey married on November 5, 1980. The couple went on to have two children together, Burke, who was born on January 27, 1987, and John Bonet, who was born August 6, 1990. In 1996, his company, Access Graphics, grossed over $1 billion, and he was named Entrepreneur of the Year by the Boulder Chamber of Commerce. After his daughter's murder, there was a cloud of speculation surrounding him that he had been the one to take his daughter's life. The family moved back to Atlanta shortly after JonBenet's death, and Axis Graphics was sold to General Electric in 1997. In 2004, after the family moved to Michigan, John campaigned for a seat in Michigan's House of Representatives as a Republican Party, but took second place. John went on to share a relationship with Beth Holloway, Natalie Holloway's mother, after the two bonded over the loss of their daughters. In 2011, John married his third wife, Jan Russo, and the couple now reside in Michigan. Patsy Ramsey was born December 29, 1956. Patsy was gorgeous. She competed in several beauty pageants and was crowned Miss West Virginia in 1977 at the age of 20. 
She attended West Virginia University, where she graduated with a Bachelor of the Arts in Journalism in 1978. At the age of 23, Patsy married John. The couple and their two children moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Boulder, Colorado in 1991 for John's business. After battling the cloud of suspicion that she was responsible for her daughter's murder on top of ovarian cancer twice, Patsy succumbed to her cancer on June 24, 2006, at the young age of 49. After her death, she was laid to rest next to her daughter, John Bonet. Burke Ramsey was the older brother of John Bonet. He was just a normal nine year old little boy when his sister was murdered. He liked video games, remote control cars, and playing with his friends. It's been reported that Burke was quite jealous of his beauty queen sister. It was reported that he hit her with a golf club once, leaving a scar on her face. It has also been reported that Burke routinely smeared fecal matter on the walls and left it in JonBenet's bed. During the investigation, officers discovered a box of candy that JonBenet had received for Christmas in her sealed-off bedroom that had been smeared with fecal matter. Due to the alleged doo-doo and anger issues, people have long suspected Burke of killing his young sister. He was nine, a nine-year-old little boy whose world completely imploded and the media was far from kind to the Ramses. His behavior was categorized as odd and unlike the way a nine-year-old should act. The whole case was completely unprecedented. Never in the history of the FBI nor the state of Colorado has a kidnapping victim been discovered in their home by a parent deceased. I will say there were so many things in this case that were fabricated or taken out of context that I can't be sure the fecal matter thing really happened. I wouldn't be surprised, nor could I blame Burke, though, if he was jealous of John Bonet. John Bonet, Patricia Ramsey, was a beautiful six-year-old little girl who was born in Atlanta, Georgia. You couldn't help but be enamored with her big, bright eyes, cute button nose, and kind smile. Her name is a mixture of her father's first and middle names, John Bennett. Her middle name came from her mother's first name. She was your typical outgoing six-year-old little girl who liked playing with Barbies, dolls, and friends. John Bonet was just a kindergartner at the time of her death. During her short six years, John Bonet competed very successfully in several beauty pageants throughout the U.S. She held the titles of Little Miss Colorado, Little Miss Charlevoix, Colorado State All-Star Kids Cover Girl, America Royal Miss, and National Tiny Miss Beauty. John Bonet's last pageant was December 17, 1996. She performed Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. She was crowned Little Miss Christmas and won a medal for her talent. After her murder made national headlines, not much of John Bonet's life was released aside from the fact that she was clearly a very talented little girl who competed in several beauty pageants. The media took this fact and ran wild. In Colorado, beauty pageants aren't really a popular thing. But we have to remember that Patsy was a Southerner and a former beauty queen, and JonBenet herself was born in Georgia. Pageantry was quite popular in the South. TLC created an entire empire built on this very idea. Toddlers and tiaras, anyone? The fact that she was in the pageant world took center stage during the investigation, and much of who JonBenet was seemed to be overlooked. Aside from pageantry and her murder, you'll be hard-pressed to find much else about her life online. 
All right, so let's talk a little about the home that John Bonet and her family lived in. The home was located at 755 15th Street in Boulder, Colorado. The home was built in 1927 and it was a classic Tudor style home. The home featured five bedrooms and eight bathrooms. And this was a huge house. It was 7,240 square feet. It featured three fireplaces. The entire third level had been converted into a master suite, and there were two balconies on the second level. The home had nine exterior doors and 104 windows. The Ramseys purchased the home for $500,000, but after the murder, the family sold the home into a company that was created in the name of the address that was run by Mike Bynum, the Ramseys' attorney, and several investors. The home sold for $650,000 and then went on the active market in 2004 and was sold to a couple in California for $1,050,000. The home has been on and off the market several times throughout the years. In fact, the home is currently for sale for a whopping $7.2 million, while other homes in the same neighborhood are listed for $2.5 million. But if you're hoping to take a peek inside the home, you'll have to settle for older photos you can find online. There's only one photo of the home on the MLS website, RE Colorado, and it's only of the backyard. On June 5th, 2001, The address of the home was changed from 755 15th Street to 749 15th Street after the current occupant petitioned the company and city. The occupant claimed it had nothing to do with the fact that John Bonet had been murdered in the home, but I would imagine this home had lots of traffic in front of it due to this fact alone. The room where John Bonet was found was later sealed off by a brick wall and plaster as if the room never existed and the secrets it held encased, hidden away from all who wonder. On the day that I'm recording this, there's just been a news break saying that John Ramsey wrote a letter to Governor Jared Polis asking for release of the DNA so it can be tested by a private lab. We won't be going over the DNA in today's episode, but it's been a hot topic. As far as I can see, and I do have the DNA reports, there are very crucial items that have yet to be tested. John Ramsey is 78 years old and is hoping to see a conviction or, at the very least, quote, remove a demented and dangerous person from our midst and, in doing so, potentially protect the lives of other children, end quote. There is hesitation to release the DNA as there's a limited amount in this case. As always, I'll let you know any updates that come out regarding the DNA. Now, let me take you back to the morning of December 26, 1996. It was a cold morning. Around 5.50 a.m., the time that Patsy was making her way down the spiral staircase to discover the infamous two-and-a-half-page ransom letter, the temperature was sitting right about four degrees Fahrenheit. A light layer of frost covered the ground. Patsy climbed down the stairs, stopped near John Bonet's room in the laundry room, to grab a few final items needed for the family's trip to Charlevoix, Michigan. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, she saw three pages laid across the bottom stair. She leaned in to read the note, assuming it was a reminder from her housekeeper to leave a check on the counter as she was borrowing $2,500 from the Ramsey family. The note was addressed to Mr. Ramsey. It wasn't until the fourth sentence that the author told the Ramseys They had their daughter. When Patsy read this, she began screaming for John, 
who was in their master suite getting ready. He came running down the stairs, unsure of why Patsy was yelling, but never expecting what was about to come. Patsy and John read the letter. Here's what the letter said. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money, and hence, a earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. And it's signed SBTC. John told Patsy to call 911, even though the letter explicitly said not to. This call has received an immense amount of speculation as to what was said after Patsy thought she had hung up the phone. In the original recording of the 911 tape, a frantic Patsy can be heard begging the dispatcher to send police. Later, the public and investigators would accuse Patsy, John, and nine-year-old Burke of having a conversation in the kitchen while the phone was supposed to be disconnected. The family held strong to the story that Burke slept through the entire 911 call and the arrival of the first officers. I can't find a clip that I can link for you, but you can find it on YouTube. The suspected conversation happened as follows. Patsy says, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. What did you do? At the same time, John says, we're not talking to you. And what they assume is Burke says, what did you find? 
Now, this is all alleged. This tape has been scrutinized by everybody and their dog. This is what is believed by some to have been said. I'm not saying that that's what happened. Patsy had called several friends and the family's pastor over to the home immediately after phoning police. Along with the Ramseys, there were four of their friends and the pastor when officers arrived. On scene, officers searched the home. Not well, but it was searched. Officers met with John and Patsy and asked what the family had done the night before. John explained that the family had attended Christmas dinner at a family friend's, Fleet and Priscilla White's home. They ate dinner, the children played, and they even had a special visit from Santa himself. The family left the White's home, dropped off a few presents to friends, and then made their way home. John Bonet fell asleep in the car, and John carried her inside to her bed. It's been reported that John read to John Bonet, but also that she was asleep and he just placed her in her bed. Another one of the large discrepancies in this case. John Bonet was reported to have been wearing a red turtleneck and white long underwear pants. Burke was taken by Fleet White to the White home to be with their son, Fleet III. The family, officers, and friends stayed on the main floor in the den area and formal dining room. Fleet White returned to the group. Officers outside were looking for a sign of forced entry, but were unable to find any. The first detective on scene, Linda Arndt, noted that John and Patsy did not interact and that John's behavior was vastly different from the distraught Patsy's. John was described as being calm and cordial. Patsy was zoned out, distraught, and unable to walk at times. Linda Arndt noted that 10 a.m. came and went and no one batted an eye almost as if the kidnappers didn't give a time frame. By 10.30 on the 26th, all officers had cleared the scene except for Linda Arndt. Linda has received much backlash for her handling of the situation and even went on to leave the police force after this. The Ramseys should have been interviewed separately and asked for individual statements. The entire house should have been treated as a crime scene. Linda Arndt should never have been left in charge of so many people at such a large crime scene by herself, and friends should have been asked to leave. But hindsight is 2020. When Linda Arndt arrived, she was under the impression that this was just a kidnapping. She had no idea this would turn into a homicide in just a few short hours. The day progressed, and Linda Arndt questioned John, Patsy, and friends. She made notes the entire time regarding their answers, demeanors, and anything odd she noted. It was around 12 p.m. that Linda started to page her supervisor, requesting more backup, and the home became more and more tense. A page that would go unanswered for a little over an hour. For all my younger listeners, a pager is a little electronic box that you used to wear like on your waistband or in your bag, and it was used to send messages to each other before cell phones were widely popular, like they are now. Anyway, around 1 p.m., Linda Arndt could tell that John was becoming more and more agitated. His leg was constantly bouncing, and she decided that she needed to give John a task to occupy his mind. This fateful decision would lead to one of the biggest mistakes in the investigation. Linda Arndt told John to search the home from top to bottom for anything that seemed out of place, excluding JonBenet's room, 
as it had been sealed off by crime scene tape. John grabbed his friend, Fleet White, and headed for the basement. A basement that had been noted by friends and family of the Ramseys that if you didn't know which door led to the basement from personal experience, it would have been very hard to know that the home even had one. At approximately 1.05 p.m., Linda Arndt saw Fleet White run from the basement door to the den area. She heard some type of shout or scream, and then she saw John Ramsey come running up the stairs, carrying his lifeless daughter's body in his arms, and she yelled for someone to call an ambulance. This is going to get a little graphic here. If this is something that you don't want to hear, please fast forward through this part. I'm not trying to be graphic or disrespectful. I just want to give you an idea of how long and the condition of JonBenet when she was discovered. JonBenet Ramsey had her arms above her head, her lips were blue, and her body appeared to have rigor mortis. There was a white string attached to her right wrist, a bright red mark on the front of her neck. The lower portion of her neck and the right side of her face appeared to show signs of liver mortis. Liver mortis is also known as postmortem hypostasis or postmortem lividity. It's a passive process of blood accumulating within parts of the body as a result of gravity, causing a discoloration of the skin that varies from pink to dark purple. So essentially, the lowest parts of the body collect blood and appear to be bruised. John placed his daughter's body on a rug just inside the front door at Linda Arndt's direction. Linda Arndt bent down, smelled a faint smell of decomposition, felt John Bonet, and noted that she was cold to the touch and no pulse could be detected. She also noted that there was dried mucus from one of John Bonet's nostrils and observed that she was wearing a white long sleeve shirt and white pajama bottoms. Linda Arndt then told John Ramsey the sentence that no parent wants to hear that his six-year-old daughter, who was so excited for Christmas just hours before, was dead. He let out an audible moan, and she directed him back into the den with the others. After John had left the room, John Bonet's body was moved again. Linda Arndt picked up her body, carried her to the living room, and placed her on a rug in the center of the floor. John came back into the living room and asked if he could cover John Bonet's body while simultaneously grabbing a throw blanket and placing it over his daughter, further contaminating the crime scene. Patsy, the four friends, and the pastor now joined Linda in the living room. Both John and Patsy were crying and laying on their daughter. The pastor then began to pray for John Bonet, and Patsy sobbed harder. It wasn't until 1.25 p.m. that another officer arrived at the scene. John was asked about finding John Bonet's body. John told investigators that when he originally discovered her, she was in the wine cellar in the basement behind a latched door. This door latched at the top and could only be latched from the outside. John also said that her body was concealed under a blanket. He removed the blanket from her body and left it in the room. The blanket can be seen in the crime scene photos, still crumpled in a pile. He stated that her arms had been tied above her head and he removed a piece of tape from her mouth. Officers asked where John Bonet had been found, what had happened in the time they had left 
to the time the body was discovered, and the Ramses and friends were asked to leave the home. Officers knew they needed to obtain a search warrant. Now they had a homicide to try and solve. So I mentioned several times that friends and a pastor were at the Ramsey home on that fateful day. Let's get to know a little more about each of them. Fleet and Priscilla White were longtime friends of the Ramseys. The Ramseys had attended Christmas dinner at their home the night before, and Fleet is considered to be one of the last people to see John Bonet alive. Fleet was also with John when John Bonet's body was discovered. After 20 long months of investigation and feeling like investigators were no closer to finding who killed John Bonet, Fleet confronted John Ramsey and asked why the family wouldn't speak to police. This caused a rift between the two families, and after the Whites were accused of being suspects by the Ramseys, the families ended their friendship. They are regarded as the only friends from the Ramseys' inner circle to speak out against the family. The Whites did testify for the grand jury that recommended the indictment of John and Patsy Ramsey, which is a story for another episode. In 1997, 2008, and also in 2014, the Whites were publicly exonerated. John and Barbara Fernie were also friends of the Ramseys. While John Ramsey and Fleet White were discovering John Bonet's body, John had gone upstairs to search for clues. Much less is known about this family as they have stayed out of the limelight. The Ramseys went to stay with the Fernies after their home was deemed a crime scene. The Fernies did testify in 1998 when the grand jury was convened, but all grand jury information is sealed. It is widely believed that the Fernies support John and Patsy Ramsey to this day. According to LinkedIn, John Fernie opened his own real estate brokerage in 2004, and Barbara Fernie is a chaplain at Good Samaritan Medical Center in Lafayette. Lastly, Father Roland, or Roll, Hoverstock was the Ramsey's priest at the church they attended, St. John's Episcopal Church. Father Roll went to the Ramsey's home that morning of December 26, 1996, to counsel his parishioners. Father Roll never spoke to the media regarding the Ramsey family or what happened that day. It is believed that he testified for the grand jury as well. His interactions with the Ramsey family are protected under pastor penitent privilege. Unfortunately, Roll lost his battle to cancer on October 1st, 2015. From what I was able to find in his obituary online, he loved cycling and he devoted his life to Christ and to his family. And that's where we're going to stop for today. We're all caught up on the first few hours when the case made the huge shift from kidnapping to homicide. We will pick back up next week with the autopsy report the insane media coverage this case received, and the eventual interviews with the Ramsey family. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Please follow me on Instagram at Colorado Crime Pod for information regarding next week's episode, as well as other true crime happenings. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case. At the end, I'll give you my thoughts on who I think committed this heinous crime. I do hope, for John Bonet's sake, and for the sake of her family, that one day this case is solved. That's all I have for you. I hope you have a beautiful day wherever you are. And as always, stay safe.